Hello and welcome to The Menu, Monaco Radio's food and drink programme. I'm your host, Chiara Rimella. This week, we have decided to stay close to our studios in London for a tour of a neighbourhood that keeps evolving in culinary matters. Shoreditch in East London has long been a great place to eat, but its restaurants are all grown up now and are often setting the pace for the rest of the city and beyond. So come with us as we drop into some of its most interesting outposts to find out about various trends that are shaping the restaurant industry here and abroad. First, we sit down in the studio with a team from Italian-inspired eatery Manteca to find out about their new range of drinks and why a nose-to-tail in-house approach matters. We're very fortunate to work with so many amazing and small importers where they really care about who they import the wine from. And so it's really important for us to have products on our menu that we really believe in and that we stand Behind. Then we head to Wine Bar Orange on Bacon Street, where we learn more about the ever-growing demand for low-intervention wines. People generally want to be connected to the food and drink they consume and understand fully where that's come from. And I think slowly people are reconditioning their palates. They're choosing to say, well, actually, this is how it should taste. And what I understood wine to taste like before was actually wrong. Plus, we sample some of the city's best Mexican food at Zapote, proving that there is plenty of room for small, independent Mexican restaurants to stand up to the chains. All that here on the menu on Monocle Radio. From quiet holes in the wall to popular historic haunts, you're never too far away from a warming bowl of pasta or at least a decent pizza in London. However, Italian-inspired restaurant Manteca, located on Curtin Road in Shoreditch, is one of the city's standout spots, and that's partly got to do with its bold flavour combinations and nose-to-tail cooking approach. Since its beginnings as a pop-up in London's Soho, the team at Manteca decided to relocate to the ever-changing neighbourhood of Shoreditch, where they had even more room to explore their ambitions to make as much as they can in-house. The restaurant boasts its own on-site salumeria and often whips up many of the ingredients for its meals in its open kitchen, but the team has recently taken it one step further. Manteca now blends their very own brand of wine and amaro. We sat down with Manteca's head of wine, Emily Acha Derrington, and its co-founder and chef, Chris Leach, to find out why it was so important for them to release their own brand of drinks. When I started cooking, I always knew I wanted to open a restaurant. And then the idea for Manteca started forming about seven, eight years ago. And then I was really trying to pull that idea out of my head, get it into a solid concept. It didn't have a name for a while. Then the name came to me and I had this idea of bringing together all my quite varied experience of restaurants and into what would be an Italian-inspired restaurant. We do make all of our pasta in-house. Everything we can make ourselves, we will, which is what's led us to do things like make our own wine and now our own Amaro. Yeah, so Emily, as head of wine, I feel like you should do the honours. When did this idea to create your own wine come to mind? And why? And how do you even approach a task like that? I mean, I think the idea has always existed. I've worked in wine for quite a long time since graduating university, and I've worked in lots of different sides of the wine trade. And one of those sides was actually designing wine labels, not myself, but working in a team that designed wine labels for own label wines. So it's something that 
supermarkets do, that large importers do. And I just think that actually there's something really nice about a restaurant doing it because we're very fortunate to work with so many amazing and small importers where they really care about who they import the wine from. They actually know the producers. The producers actually come to the restaurant. We have some South African producers that even when they're not doing any trade shows, they still will come and have lunch at Manteca and we know them. And so it's really important for us to have products on our menu, food and beverage, that we really believe in and that we stand behind. And you can actually see your guests drinking that. I think it's a pretty cool thing to do. So what kind of version of Manteca is represented in this wine? When I drink it, what kind of idea do I make of what the place is like and what the place does? I suppose the the wine list in general is quite an eclectic wine list. You have some classics, you have a side of the list that represents lower intervention wines from slightly more obscure places. However, the thing that holds the whole list together are wines that are first and foremost made by a real person who actually cares about what they do but also wines that have great aromatics, good acidity and texture, because those are the kind of wines that actually work with the food that is served at Manteca, which is really vibrant. You have a lot of different and contrasting flavours from chilli to garlic to citrus. For that, you need a wine that actually can work with lots of different things. I don't necessarily think that you should always think about this dish only goes with this kind of wine or this dish only goes with that the best part of Manteca is looking at the tables and seeing lots of different types of wine on a table being enjoyed with lots of different small plates or larger cuts. So this particular wine is a wine that we blended from three different wines. We worked with Valdebella, which is a cooperative in Sicily, about an hour south of Palermo um, in a region called Camporeale. And they use a lot of indigenous grapes. And because they're a cooperative, they work with lots of different small producers, people who actually sell them the grapes, they make wines. So one of the grapes that we use for the base is Grillo. And what I liked about that particular wine was that there was lots of orchard fruit characters, that sort of peachy, apricotty, very fruit forward characters in that particular wine. Another of the base wines is Catarato extra lucido, which means extra shiny. So that particular grape, it had loads and loads of texture in it. It was slightly cloudy in, in the finished wine and it had lots and lots of acidity. And for me, although I really loved it, I actually thought that you needed a little bit more fruit. It didn't have so much on the nose. And so the Grillo blended with the Cataretto extra lucido actually just made this lovely sort of white, slightly, slightly cloudy, but still white wine. And then, because it's Manteca and because we like things slightly different, we blended 20% orange wine into that. So this was Catarato that was left on skins for 10 days. And so that particular wine was an orange wine. However, I wanted this to be a white wine. I like colour in white wine, and I think that that is something that in the UK we're actually a little bit scared of. In Italy, you get white wines ranging from very, very white all the way through to quite an ambery colour, and that is still white wine. But in this country, we sort of look at that, oh no, that's orange, you know, that's not white wine. But what we are fortunate enough to be able to do at Manteca is put wines like that on the by the glass list and actually introduce people to white wine that's not just white. It might have a little bit of golden colour to it. So this tiny portion of orange wine adds a little bit more texture and loads and loads of bright aromatics. So, okay, we've talked about it. 
We have a bottle in front of us. Yeah. It seems a pity not to try it. <laughs> so could you do the honours, please? Of course. Shall we have a taste and then you can be the sommelier here and tell us <laughs> what we're tasting, please? Okay. So it sort of smells and tastes exactly how I remember it tasting when we first did it, which is always a worry, I think, when you do a blend and then you leave it with the winery and you're like, okay, a few months later, how does it actually taste? How does it actually look? But this one, it's got loads of orchardy fruits, some pear, maybe some apple, maybe cooked apple, that sort of ripe fruit flavours. And then you can see it's not completely clear. It's unfined and unfiltered, so there's a little bit of cloudiness. I think it's got great acidity. It's got weight. It works with food. You can stand up to all the amazing dishes that Chris has on the menu. You've actually also been working on an Amaro of your own, which I think is such an interesting choice because... I feel like Amaro is finally coming into its own here in the UK. Whilst growing up in Italy, it was always part of what my family and everybody's family and us as teenagers even used to drink after dinner. Why do you think there is this new discovery or rediscovery of Amaro in the UK? I'll just say that a few weeks ago, I interviewed the author of a wonderful cookbook dedicated to bitterness as a taste. And she was talking about how the rise of the Negroni and our passion for coffee and for chocolate all catalyze this new interest for bitterness. Is there something of that in this or is it more of a cultural thing or why do you think there is this discovery of the Amaro? Personally, I've always been drawn to bigger, bolder flavors and bitter is one of the things I've loved about Italian cuisine and drinks is they really, really embrace bitterness, Amari. And I remember I tried a few different Amaros and I knew, obviously, things like Campari, Aperol as a sort of standard. But I, the light bulb moment for me was trying a Capaletti Sfumato at the end of a meal once and it, mind-blowing. And it was, it's smoky and bitter and sweet. And that was what really ignited my passion for Amaro. And when we did our first pop-up that has five years later led to our shortage site and us making our own Amaro. It was to have the main focus of the drinks being Amaro driven. And we've tried making our own Amaro in-house and now we've partnered with Volta Aperitivo to make our own, which will be bottled and be able to be purchased. And I think it's really, really exciting. Why put so much emphasis on making your own things of everything you started saying that you know we make our own pasta we make our own wine we make our own amaro what does it mean to you as the head of the restaurant my sort of approach to it is by making our own anything or making as much as we can in-house it just creates a uniqueness to our food and our flavors not that we are doing it necessarily better than anyone but it tastes like Manteca, or it's it becomes completely unique and that sort of from scratch attitude we try and apply to everything so having our own wine our own amaro is just a natural evolution of that all right then let's find out about your palate by trying a bit of this amaro because i'm okay. curious to see how you expressed yourself in these flavors so we've got a little sample in a can here excellent the true sound of amaro yeah, exactly. Are currently being bottled and labelled as we speak. <laughs> but we do have ice, so we came prepared. Yeah. So you suggest to serve it on the rocks? On the rocks or chilled? 
Mm. Yeah, personally. Some people drink it really syrupy, like from the shelf. I've drunk plenty of syrupy Amari in my time. It's a similar approach to our wine. It's actually unfined, unfiltered. We worked on the sugar content as well, trying it with Emily. She felt it should have been maybe less sugar. I wanted a little bit more because it starts to get a bit more on the spirit, alcoholy side, whereas I prefer... A bit more niche. <laughs> yeah, but I think this is exactly what we kind of want at the end of a meal at Manteco. It's got green walnut, cacao, fig leaf, those flavours... Kind of oh wow, it's the... delicious. It, it is on the sweet side, I have to say, for an Amaro. It's very floral, light, delicious. Yeah. Absolutely delicious. But it's almost like pudding. Yeah. <laughs> Which is the end of a meal, and it is a very satisfying one for that. Yeah. It's also, it's quite light in colour. Mm-hmm. There was talk of adding a caramel to it, which is what the classic Amaro houses do to give them that real, real deep, dark colour. But we decided against that, and... I think it works. I think it's very it's very reflective of how a meal at Manteca should finish this and maybe a piece of beef fat fudge. <laughs> yes. So, uh, I mean, the bitterness does build at the back of your throat, mm. which is lovely, which is the sign of like a good Amaro that has different layers that keeps unfolding as you drink it. There's the beginning and then there's the end that stays with you and lingers. So what about future plans? Is there going to be a volume two Amaro or what is in the future of Manteca now? We've just turned two as a restaurant and I think it really feels like we're getting in our stride now and we're only just getting started. I think there will be variations of Amaro. There will be more wines. We're just getting started. There's a lot of plans ahead and I think 2024 is going to be a big year for us as well. I mean, I think it's really interesting because what you guys do is clearly hugely successful. Every single time I've been to the restaurant, it's heaving on a Monday night. So it is astonishing. And it's a big-ish site compared to lots of other restaurants in London. How do you think you fit in the London restaurant scene as a whole, and more specifically in the Italian restaurant or Italian-inspired restaurant scene in London? I've never really thought about how necessarily we fit in as an Italian restaurant, because I feel like our approach is looking forward, not around. So we kind of focus on what we do and who we work with, both with employees and with suppliers. But I think we've got our place in London. We're carving out a space that is is suitable for us. When we were opening the restaurant and you were trying to explain it to people, obviously you could say it's going to be an Italian restaurant, but I think it is a lot more than that. And that is something we just want to keep building on making everything our, ourselves and creating unique and fun products the thirst for natural wines in london and beyond is undeniable everywhere you go more and more restaurants and bars are adding these quirky funky wines to their lists one brand that has helped to drive this movement in the uk capital is orange Founded as an online bottle shop in lockdown, Orange is now one of Shoreditch's most exciting neighbourhood bars. Founded as an online bottle shop in lockdown, Orange is now one of the most exciting neighbourhood bars in Shoreditch. In 2022, Orange opened up their first bricks and mortar space and became the area's first dedicated natural wine bar. Since then, the spot has earned itself cult-like status for its vast selection of low-intervention bottles hailing from the more popular regions in France to smaller-scale wineries in Slovakia. Monocle's Emily Wade headed down to the watering hole set in a warehouse-come-gallery space to meet founder Jasper Delamos and find out more. 
you originally set up Orange as a bottle shop and delivery service back in 2020. What made you turn it into a permanent venture? Well, after having run a website for two years, and essentially that means being behind a screen most of the time, it felt like a thing we needed to do. We needed a place that would bring our community together, that once we were allowed back into spaces and we could be drinking and eating together, it felt like the natural thing to do. We'd also been doing all of these collaborations remotely with sommeliers and wine people from big restaurants and bars. Aside from that, we'd also been working with artists and having them create posters for us. And then lastly, we'd also had DJs producing mixes. And so having had this space where we were running our logistics for the online store from in Shoreditch, once we were able to get a license, it was the obvious thing to do. And how did you find the space? Was that quite a tricky process? In all honesty, yes. So I saw the space early 2021 I'd been operating the website for about a year at that point. We'd moved three locations. It started, I mean, Orange started in my kitchen. I took photographs of the first set of bottles of wine in my garden, quite literally. Yeah. Um, and then it moved to a little office in Dalston before being outsourced to a, a warehouse outside of London. But once I'd seen the space, one, I realized that I could run the online operation from there. But two, I thought if the world becomes normal again and we can all hang out with each other this would be the perfect space for a wine bar and a restaurant basically so if we can move on to talking a little bit more about the wines natural biodynamic wines have become a lot more successful and accessible in the last decade is that down to the production or bottle shop owners such as yourself what do you think the boom has been I would say that natural and biodynamic wines have become a lot more accessible in the last decade, mainly down to quite a few reasons. I mean, it's a really good question. Firstly, broadly speaking, there's been a huge, huge philosophical change. And I think that's mainly down to traceability within initially the food scene that has probably transferred over to drinks and now wine too. People generally want to be connected to the food and drink they consume and understand fully where that's come from, the processes that have been applied to it. We no longer want to eat things that we have no idea about. And I think the difficulty with natural wine a lot of the time is that it does sometimes taste so different to traditional wine. And we have to acknowledge that. But I think has happened over the last 10 years is that slowly people are reconditioning their palates. They're choosing to say, well, actually, this is how it should taste. And what I understood wine to taste like before was actually wrong. Mm -hmm. And just lastly, it's more delicious. Do you find that you get a lot of customers coming back time and time again? You must have a mix of regular customers as well as new faces as well. That must be really nice to see. Absolutely. We have a really, really high repeat rate of customers coming back. We have lots of regulars who will come for each and every kitchen residency that we have. We have lots of customers who come back and we have an ever-changing by-the-glass menu and usually around 100 bottles available via the seller. 
also available online. And our regulars sometimes get upset because we're just constantly changing the wines. We always want what is the most delicious on the menu at that very one time. We like to make sure that the offering is the best it can be at all times. And if we can touch on a little bit about the art residencies you hold here, because you mentioned that a little bit. How did that come about? Did you have those relationships with the artists already? Do they come to you? How does that work? And in terms of how you pair the food in that way as well? One of my other loves is art. And when I started Orange, it was at a time when we couldn't actually go to exhibitions. And we were all sitting in our homes eating and drinking and getting on with it and probably working from home or not. But essentially I wanted to somehow bridge that art element into Orange and that appreciation and that passion I have for it. And so we started out with doing a monthly collaboration with artists that we would commission to create an artwork that would be turned into a poster that would be sent to people's homes, customers of ours, subscribers at the time. The natural progression once we had a space was of course to start exhibiting work and to start supporting artists in a similar way that we support chefs. It's a platform. It's a space where we want to exhibit the best of the best alongside each other and blur the thresholds between those mediums. So should we move on and taste some of these wines because they're sitting here looking at me and they look really good so let's have a let's have a taste yeah talk us through what's the name and where's it from this is a tableau by francois blanchard he's a winemaker whose family have been making wine for five generations but he's somebody who's taken things down a more natural route and is really really living by that philosophy of Nothing added, nothing taken away. It's a wine that features on our By the Glass list and it will only be on that for probably about two weeks. That's because it's been produced in such small quantities that we could only get 48 bottles of it. It's our more expensive orange wine option, which is £13 per glass. And once it's gone, it's gone. It's not going to be available on our website because we just didn't get enough of it. And it's amazing because people have been coming here and completely falling in love with it. Much like the way that we did when we tasted it a few weeks back at a wine tasting focused on the Loire Valley. Let's have a taste. So how would you compare this to other orange wines that you have or that you've had in the past? Would you say it's kind of quite different to anything else you've had here? For sure it's different and it's a special, special wine. If a customer came in and they asked for an orange wine and they wanted to learn more about it and maybe it was the first time trying one, I wouldn't necessarily give this to them. On the nose, you already get that extra acidity, bordering on volatility. It's high, high in acid, it's zippy, it's pithy. You're getting kind of sour apple notes. And it's, it's different, it's unusual. It's Sauvignon Blanc macerated. Sauvignon Blanc is usually served as a white wine and that's people's experience of it. 
So to have that as an orange wine is really unusual. So it's not for everybody. <laughs> it's quite interesting with this one because you smell it. And as you said, it is quite powerful when you smell it. But actually, when you have a taste, it's quite light and easygoing. It's a uh, quite interesting. I really I like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's actually much more delicate on the palate than it is on the nose. There's also amazing tannic texture to it too. You can really see how it would hold up with food and add something to it. Thanks, Emily. This is The Menu on Monocle Radio. Now it's time for the week's top food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. Scotch whisky now contributes £7.1 billion or nearly €8.3 billion Euros to the UK economy, according to a new report from the Scotch Whisky Association. This comes as a result of soaring export sales amid growing demand in key markets such as the USA, India and China. The island nation of Malta has appointed their very first ambassador for wine. Wine enthusiast and expert Joseph Bonello was selected by the Malta Tourism Association to raise the profile of Maltese wines both locally and internationally. Mr Bonello will also be in charge of establishing a brand identity for the wines of Malta and its surrounding islands. And finally, in Sweden, the beloved FICA may be coming to an end as a result of budget cuts. The FICA is a customary short coffee and snack break in the middle of the working day, subsidised by your employer, which many people are entitled to in their working contracts. However, in some regions, employees are now required to pay for their own snacks in a bid to reduce costs. And in other specific companies, the tradition is being scrapped as a whole. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Chiara. Thanks, Monica. You're listening to The Menu. There's no shortage of pretty much any cuisine in London. But a long-standing feud with the US has always made it the underdog when it comes to good Mexican food. Away from the ubiquitous chains, authentic Mexican restaurants in London have long been in short supply. It's a trend that, thankfully, is gradually changing. Monocle's Alistair McQueen went along to Zapote on Shoreditch's Leonard Street to discover how this kitchen is joining a movement towards more refined, exciting and independent Mexican cuisine. Zapote restaurant only opened early last year, but it has already become a popular destination for city workers as a refined office lunch location and a go-to spot for cool client meets for the area's creative and design agencies. With its relaxed, sleek interiors that mix large-scale murals and traditional pastel colours, seating spaces range from intimate banquettes to long, elegant tables perfect for diners wanting to experience the joy of sharing this most convivial of cuisines. It's not just the interior that's attempting to root diners in the Mexican ethos, though. Zapote's executive chef, Yehir Gonzalez, was brought up in Aguascalientes, Mexico, and is a firm believer in cooking with the ingredients that he grew up with and providing dishes that allow for the more social aspect of the country's food to flourish. He tells me more in the restaurant's hot and bustling kitchen as he prepares one of Zapote's signature dishes, 
octopus with persilla chili glaze served on a bed of pipian verde sauce. The dried chiles, we bring them from Mexico quarterly. We have a company that brings them from Mexico quarterly and then they send us to, to us every week. The jalapeño, they grow in Holland. The vegetables are from the UK and the paste from the moles we bring from Mexico as well. Actually, the avocados we use for the guacamole are from Michoacán. They are not all the month available, so it depends. And you can really taste the, the quality. They are like butter and they don't oxidize. Uh, yeah, they are great. We clean the seeds of the chili. It's a pasilla chili glaze. Not all the chiles in Mexico are spicy. Every chili has different flavors. Some of them are smoked, some of them are bitter, some of them are fruity. That's something very unique from Mexico as well, I believe, that it's not to give a spicy to the place. Yahir brings all of this knowledge and passion to all of Zapote's dishes and brushes the meaty octopus leg with the dark, unctuous pasilla chili glaze as it lays on a stone chopping plate. We sell octopus, poof. Irra, how many octopus we cook this week? Like 40 kilos of octopus we, we did this week. Yeah, I think the, the guy that we buy the octopus is pretty happy this month because he's making a lot of profit. But, but yeah, we do as well. And people love the octopus. Uh, there are many techniques to cook it now in modern days. You can steam it, you can slow cook it, to fish. But I find the best way is to do what they used to do in Galicia, which is on boiling water for 20 minutes and then leave it to rest as much as you need. Some of them need 20 or 25 minutes, but just in the water, not boiling. So you boil it for 20 minutes and then you leave it to rest. Otherwise the skin will peel. And after there is, that never fails, you just take a stick and you put it in the hard part of the octopus and it needs to come and go easily. And that's it, that is lost. The provenance of the chilies and the octopus illustrates Yahir's commitment to cooking with quality ingredients. What else does he serve here that embodies the Mexican spirit? Well, I think the most important one is our tortillas that we do, we do on the house. Tony and me went to Mexico to bring the tortilla machine and the uh, grinder, which we use volcanic stones. So the corn, we cook it here, we call nixtamal. We cook it in the night and leave it to rest the, the next day. So it's a long process, but I think that's the most Mexican thing about the tortillas, no? Everyone knows tacos, tostadas. I think the corn is the most important ingredient in the Mexican. As Yehir serves the octopus on a generous circle of the pipian verde sauce, I ask him what's driving the trend behind the Mexican food openings in the UK. Well, I think uh, there are very good Mexican restaurants in London, but we think there is there was still an opportunity for us. I got to feel here you can come try one taco, two tacos, one tostada, or there are many things you want. I think uh, what's very important as well that Mexican cuisine is not only tacos and nachos. Uh, we use a lot of fresh ingredients, lots of chilies. We do encourage people to eat with their hands and to share things like we do in Mexico. With its relaxed ambience, quality ingredients, great location, and a passionate executive chef recreating the best of Mexico in the kitchen, Zapote is a location where people can immerse themselves in the spirit of the country, 
whether it's drinking cocktails at the bar or sharing the meatiest octopus leg this side of Cancun. For Monocle in Shoreditch, East London, I'm Alistair McQueen. Thanks, Alistair. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. We hope you enjoy these Shoreditch spots as much as we do. We will be back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in San Francisco. Also, don't forget to tune into our spin-off show, Food Neighbourhoods, for a tour of some of the world's tastiest destinations. I am Chiara Rimella. This programme was produced by Monica Lillis and our sound engineer was Mariella Bevan. Thanks for listening and until next week. <laughs>